mountains and high, treacherous peaks. This is where Kianata had lived all his life, where he'd been born, and it was the only home he'd ever known. He felt out of place here on the flatlands, out of place and exposed to danger, like a weak old wolf cub venturing out of its birth den for the first time. Even now, as he and the rest of the band neared the Nakaya village that was their destination, a long day's journey from the Sima Silk, Kianata could look over his shoulder and see the mountains, blue in the distance. When he did this, he felt a twinge of homesickness, chindasele, but he also felt comforted, knowing that his home, his sanctuary, was within sight. He envied Ozana, who had been among those who'd stayed behind. Not everyone in the band had consented to come on this journey. There were some who opposed Kosito's decision to make peace with the Nakae. Even though Kosita was chief, that didn't mean he could compel the members of the band to follow him. It was the same way on a raid. Those who accompanied the leader of a raid did so because they wanted to, because they trusted in the skill of the leader and were convinced he would succeed. And they'd come away with horses or cattle stolen from the Nakae or at least have the opportunity to kill the enemy so that the women of the band would sing their praises around the victory fire upon their return, and they'd be honored for as long as they lived, and even in the next world. Ozana's father, Dakohe, had been one of the most vocal critics of Kosido's plan. The Nakaya, he said, could not be trusted. So they'd sent a half-breed into the Sima Silk, with word that the governor himself wanted to negotiate a peace between his people and the Chahene. The governor had even sent gifts, two pack mules laden with cheap trinkets, and a gold inlaid fowling piece made in England for Cosito. A very handsome weapon indeed, the Kohe acknowledged, but just like the promises of the Nakaya, the fowling piece was practically worthless to an Apache. And even if the Nakaya Hefa was sincere in his desire for peace, even if he was willing to acknowledge implicitly that he couldn't afford to field enough soldiers to adequately defend the villages of his people that were located within striking distance of the Chaihene rancherias on the Sima Silk, why would a Chaihene be interested in peace in the first place? There could never be, warned Dakoha, a true and lasting peace with the Nakaya because the Apache had the blood of too many Nakaya on their hands, just as the Nakaya had slain too many of the people down through the generations. Why seek peace when the Chaihene were safe in their mountain stronghold, free to strike virtually at will against their enemies, only to seek the safety of the Sima Silk once more when the killing was done and the columns of Federales and Irregulars came chasing after them? But Cosita had listened intently to the words of the half-breed envoy, who told him that, as far as the leaders of the Nakaya were concerned, the only alternative to peace was the mounting of a full-scale invasion of the mountains, with the intention of wiping out the Chaihene once and for all, regardless of the cost in both lives and treasure. It'd be cheaper in the long run to do this than to try to protect the Nakaya people forever from the Apache scourge. Cosito listened and believed. In his heart, he was sick of war. He'd lost two sons in the fight against the Nakaya, 
and he had often dreamed of the day when he would no longer have to listen to the wailing of the wives and mothers when a raiding party returned with their dead. It wasn't that Cosito feared death or the Nakaya. No one questioned his courage. But in recent years he'd begun to reevaluate the traditional Chahene approach to others, a category that included anyone who wasn't born Chahene. The approach had always been to wage war. The Chahene had fought the Comanches, the Navajo, the Spaniards, the Mexicans, and recently even the Americans. From the Chahene point of view, this was their land, and always had been, and anyone else who tried to live on it or even pass through it without their permission was Inda, an enemy. Little wonder, then, that the Chaihene were feared and distrusted by their neighbors. Little wonder that the Nakaya called them also Los Barbaros. Cosito had done his share of Apache violence. Now, though, he was thinking there had to be a better way. The numbers of his people were dwindling. If things continued on their present course, soon the Chaihene would be no more. Filled with hatred and the Heshke, the killing rage, the young Broncos didn't worry about such things. But Cosito was graying and, as older men do, had begun to contemplate his legacy and the future of his people after he was gone. In battle, the Apache usually won. An Apache wouldn't ordinarily engage an enemy unless he knew in advance that the odds were on his side. So they won the battles, but they were losing the war. There'd never been many of the people. These days, though, there were so very few. Cosito had sired three sons. Two were dead, killed in battle at the hands of the Nakaya. His other son had given him two grandchildren. They were the one source of unadulterated delight in Cosito's world. If the other two sons had lived, how many grandchildren might they have produced for him? And so the people grew fewer and fewer in number with every passing year. Cosito hated the Nakaya as fiercely as anyone else in his band, but he was willing to listen to the proposal for peace. He would stop seeking vengeance for his two dead sons and begin seeking a way to ensure that his third son and the third son's family survived. It was, after all, the duty of the Badankohe Hefa to put aside personal considerations and do what was best for the band. And so Cosito had sent the half-breed back with word that he accepted the governor's invitation to meet at the village of Dolorosa, a day's journey east from the Sima Silk. The governor had given his word that the Apaches would be free to come and go unhampered. Cosito didn't necessarily trust the governor's word, but he accepted the risks. So had thirty-nine other Bedonkohe, eighteen men, twelve women, and nine children. Though he'd have preferred that the women and children had stayed behind in safety, Cosito knew their presence was beneficial. It would serve to allay the fears of the Nakaya, who knew from experience that the Apache never brought his women and children with him on a rampage. The men who accompanied Cosito, including Kianata's father, did so of their own free will, fully cognizant of the chance they were taking. Some had left their families behind. Kianata's father had wanted to do that, but Kianata's mother had insisted on coming along.
Later, when he reflected on the events that transpired at Dolorosa, Kianata wondered if perhaps his mother had had some sort of premonition, had realized that this might be the end of her time with the man she loved, and for that reason had resolved to spend every moment by his side. As for Kianata, his father explained what was going on to him. He didn't keep anything from his son. Besides, Kianata had demonstrated an understanding of the realities of life that was very mature for a boy his age. Kianata's father didn't think it right for an Apache to try to shelter his children from the truth about the world. He'd have told Kianata's sister, too, except she was too young to understand. Still an infant, she traveled in a choach, a carrying cradle strapped to the back of Kianata's mother. Thus, when the band of Bedonkohe Apaches reached a high spot from which they could see the village called Dolorosa, Kianata could look upon the place and realize the grave dangers for himself and for his loved ones that might lurk there. He was also aware of a vague, undefined sense that whatever did transpire in the hours to come, it would be of no small importance, that his life, if he lived, would be forever changed. There was no visible sign of danger. All seemed peaceful in Dolorosa. From his vantage point, Kianata could see the small adobe structures in the shade of tall old elms that grew along a stream, the same stream that supplied water for irrigation ditches that nurtured the dusty fields of maize and beans that would ordinarily have been tended by the people of Dolorosa. But there was no one in the fields today. Kianata noticed something else was missing. He could neither see nor hear any dogs. Every Apache knew that the Nakaya villages depended on their dogs to warn them of the approach.